Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. Series 11 on the history of girlhood will start next week. Today, I have an episode by fellow Into History podcaster Rich Napolitano of the Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs podcast. Rich looks at maritime history across the world and across the ages. Historically speaking, ships were often named as women, but they didn't have a whole lot of women working on them. With some exceptions, there are a handful of known women mariners in history, and that is a potential future series topic for me. In this episode, Rich interviews a woman who is currently working in the field, Captain Carolyn Kurtz, a maritime pilot in Florida. In the ocean's vast and rolling domain, amidst the waves where seagulls remain, a noble band of sailors, brave and true, they're the pilots of the maritime blue. With steady hand and knowing eye, they guide the ships as they sail on by. Through treacherous waters they safely steer, a beacon of hope when storms draw near. From dawn's first light till twilight's fall, they answer the ocean's beck and call. Guiding vessels of all shapes and size, through channels deep and shallows guise. Their expertise a legacy they share, passed down through ages with utmost care. Navigating tides and currents dance, they bring ships home with a skillful glance. Through fog and mist, their senses keen, they read the signs that lie unseen. And with a heart that's brave and bold, they help the ships through waters cold. O maritime pilots, guardians of the sea, your courage and wisdom set us free. You are the stars that guide us right through darkest hours and stormy night. So let us praise these souls so bright who keep our ships on course each night. Across the oceans far and wide, we raise a toast to those who guide. That is an anonymous poem written for maritime pilots. The history of maritime pilots dates back at least to ancient Greece and Rome. In those times, ships' captains would hire local harbor captains, often local fishermen, to bring their vessels safely into port. The pilots would help the crew guide the vessels safely into and out of ports or other dangerous navigational areas. The pilot boat was made to quickly reach incoming ships from port. Eventually, local harbors hired licensed pilots for their specific areas. Marine pilotage is one of the oldest professions in the world, with references to pilots found in some of the earliest recorded history. In Europe, a pilot was originally known as a loadsman, derived from the German word for lodestone, an early compass. Today, pilots all over the world use their expert knowledge and skills to guide ships of all sizes into and out of ports as a crucial cog in the cargo, passenger, and cruise line industries. Maritime pilot, Captain Carolyn Kurtz, today on Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs. I'm very pleased to have today Captain Carolyn Kurtz. She is a maritime pilot here in the Tampa Bay area, and I'm so happy that she was able to join me today. Welcome, Carolyn. Hi, Rich. Uh, Let's start from the beginning with your background. Uh, How did you start your journey into this maritime business? Well, it, it was actually kind of unusual. It's probably not the path that most people take. So when I was a child, my father was working for a big shipping company. And in the summers, my mother and sister and I would get shipped off on cargo ships to just get out of New York City for the summer and see some of the world. My mother is from Scotland. So uh, once or twice, we ended up on cargo ships that were going to Scotland. And that's how we got over there to visit her her parents and and other family. And so we started doing the ship thing when I was about four years old. And 
did that every summer, probably until I was 10 or 11. And, you know, the, the foundation had been set. It was, um, even all through high school when I was trying to figure out where to go to college and what I wanted to do with my life. The one thing I kept coming back to that had really held my interest over all those years was my time on ships. And, um, you know, so it was exposure at a very early age. And when I was a kid and, and we'd be driving over a bridge in New York, you know, Manhattan's an island, we lived in Queens. So you're always going over a bridge, there's always water. And anytime I would see a tugboat, I would make my parents pull the car over so <laughs> I could look at the tugboat. So, you know, it's just kind of always, always been a thing for me. And then just as I got to be in high school and was figuring out where to go to college, the maritime schools that all I became aware of all of that and just went from there. And you were appointed to go to the Merchant Marine Academy. Is that right? That's right. It's a federal service academy, just like West Point and Annapolis and, and the others, Air Force, et cetera, Coast Guard. And um, a lot of people don't even know about the Merchant Marine Academy. They they just think the service academies are Army, Navy, and Air Force. But really, the Coast Guard and the Merchant Marine do have federal service academies. And yes, you need a an appointment from your congressperson or senator. So you have to apply when you're in high school, usually... Your, the end of your junior year, or maybe even early in your senior year for, for those um, interviews and hopefully the endorsement. When you finished at the Merchant Marine Academy, what was your first appointment? Well, it, it's all, it's commercial shipping. So you don't get appointed. You actually apply for jobs and get jobs the way you would in, in any other field. And I had been a cadet with a company and they hired me. So I was hired as a third mate or a third officer, and I was lucky to be assigned to a ship that was the sister ship of something I had spent my cadet time on. So it was very familiar already, which was a huge advantage. It was a quite a large tanker, a crude oil tanker that was 894 feet long, and um, and it was a it's a big ship. It was, <laughs> but it was already kind of familiar. So I just you know went on board and and did my thing. But that I felt like that was a huge advantage having you know been on that. But that was my first assignment. I did about three or four months on there. So you graduated from the Merchant Marine Academy. But what other certifications do you require in order to become a pilot? That's a really interesting question. There are many, many different paths to pilotage in the United States, and they vary from being fresh out of college and having no maritime experience whatsoever, and just applying to one of the organizations that where that is how they do it. They don't want you with preconceived notions or other experience that they have to undo. So that's at one end of the spectrum. So really very inexperienced, but college graduate and not necessarily even maritime graduate, just someone who has, um, you know, has received a college education and, and then they train you from really the bottom up as far as, um, being a deckhand on the pilot boat and then working on the pilot boat. And, and it, it takes years to even get to the point where you're a, an apprentice on a ship. So it's, it's really a much longer term kind of training, but, but they take you right away. Now, the other extreme are places where you have a rigorous competitive exam and the qualifications, the highest qualification for, for one of those places is to already be an unlimited master of oceans. So the biggest Coast Guard license you can get as a, as a mariner and some time as master. And then they put you through a written test and a simulator test and an interview. So those are really the two ends of the spectrum, this, you know, full experienced uh, mariner and then this very extensive testing process, you know, all the way to, you know, okay, I'm out of college and I want to be a pilot and, 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 and then everything in between. There are so many variables there. You actually served in the Persian Gulf during the Iraq and Iran war. What was your role during that time? And that was in uh, 87, 88, around that time frame, And I was the third mate on a ship. Um, 
was I third mate? No, actually I was second officer by then on the ship. So it must've been 1988. And it was a ship that was it wasn't part of MSC, which is Military Sealift Command, that is sort of the merchant branch of the Navy, where the ships are painted gray. They look like Navy ships, but they're they're staffed by merchant mariners. It wasn't that. We were a completely commercial enterprise chartered to the Navy. So it's kind of a subtle difference, but but okay. for the people that are in the industry, they they kind of they understand the difference. So I was just a, a second mate on a ship that happened to be operating in Diego Garcia, which is a strategic reserve ship place. There's a navy installation there. We rent it from the British. It's the British British Indian Ocean Territories, and it's right in the middle. It's a speck, a teeny tiny speck in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And there are any number of reserve ships there filled with all sorts of things ready to deploy at a moment's notice to help our forces, to act as support forces, you know, to the Navy anywhere in the world, in the re- in that region. So I joined a ship in Kuwait and because the ship I was joining was up there and it was, uh, we were full of gas, diesel, it was, it was a tanker. So all sorts of refined petroleum products. So, um, so that's what I did. It was anything I would do as a second mate on any ship, but we just happened to be in a war zone. (laughs) And so that there were, there were just, so there were other layers of experience, you know, my duties weren't any different, but when we were moving, when we were underway, we had Navy escorts, helicopters, ships, naval officers on board acting as liaison, all of that. So there, there were some tense hours when we were transiting through particular areas of the Persian Gulf. But then we would go back to Diego Garcia and wait until they needed us again. And, and so it was like that. You said that so casually. Well, I was just doing my job. It just happened to be a war zone. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it was. <laughs> Maybe I just didn't know enough then to to think that much about it. So, you know, sometimes we'd hear crazy things on the radio. There were the American ships were very well escorted and protected, but there were certain vessels of other nations that perhaps did not have those relationships, and so uh, were experience, uh, experiencing a lot more of being in the war zone. So we would hear things on the radio, ships calling for help because there was a gunboat off the bow and they thought they were going to get struck or something. So you would, you did, I don't mean to make light of it. It was a very serious situation, but we, we were so well protected and cared for by the Navy when we were there because we were on a tanker that could blow up (laughs) if it got hit. So um, actually one quick, quick, funny little story. I had just gotten relieved off of watch and we were under escort. So I finished, I was, I forget what time it was, eight to 12 maybe. And so I I went down to the dining room to have lunch and I got down there and I could feel the ship shaking. And that happens when you go from going full ahead to trying to stop the ship. So you put the engines astern, the, the ship starts to shake. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I go running back up to the bridge and one of the escorts thought that we were about to go sailing over mines in the water and it because they'd seen something from the air that they looked like mines and it turned out that they were sea turtles oh. <laughs> and so yeah because they were kind of the same size and shape as um, wow. as the mines so that was a, a false alarm and we were all able to laugh about that <laughs> instead of something else so tense moment but just turtles <laughs> <laughs> just turtles, those darn turtles. Now, for those of my listeners that may not know, could you explain exactly what the job of a maritime pilot is? So a maritime pilot is someone that doesn't go to sea with the ship. The maritime pilot is specific to the port area where they where they work. So ship captains cannot possibly be expected to have all the channels memorized in every port that they might go to. And because ships are transiting in narrow channels when they get to port areas, and it is not like big deep water navigation, it's narrow, restricted waterway navigation, 
pilots train in that way so that, you know, you have this local expert, someone that knows the the tides and the currents and where all the bumps are on the bottom and, you know, the customary practices of the port, how you talk on the radio, is there a dredge working over here? How to use tugboats for docking and undocking, all of those different things. So your pilot is is an expert in the restricted waterway movement of large vessels. So also the waterway needs protecting from vessels that might be in a very a substandard condition or might go too fast or not interact with other traffic correctly. So, you know, your pilot is is someone that is also is primarily looking out for the interests of the state, that we are charged by the state with the protection of the waterway and safe movement of vessels. So that is a little bit different than what the captain does. Yeah, I have to imagine somebody that was just coming into a, a port that they've never been to. Some of them obviously are very difficult to navigate. The value of a pilot is tremendous. I, I can't imagine trying to navigate a channel that I've never been to. You know, maybe you have some charts and that's about it. Yeah, that's true. And Tampa is a fairly challenging waterway. It's 42 miles from the sea buoy up to the main port. And so there's there's a lot of channel. It's narrow. We have two-way traffic most of the time. And most captains, when they come here for the first time, are really surprised when they see other ships coming <laughs> and they realize that you're going to share the channel for a couple minutes until you're passed and clear. Uh, so it is, it's a bit of an eye opener. Yeah. Uh, something that I've been dying to ask you, and that is the process of getting from the escort boat onto the ship, uh, climbing that ladder or whatever the mechanism is on certain ships. When I see videos of this, I'm just blown away because it looks so incredibly dangerous. <laughs> uh, is it actually as dangerous as it looks? It, it is the most dangerous part of the job getting on and off ships. And in fact, pilots are hurt and die every year getting on and off ships. So it's important that that equipment is maintained in excellent condition and sadly, it isn't always. Uh, there are ladder failures and all things like that. But, you know, just to explain briefly how that happens, you don't just pull up to a ship that's stopped. The ship is moving through the water. And then the pilot boat is moving through the water. So the pilot boat matches the speed of the ship, which is about 10 knots. And a knot is a nautical mile per hour. So it's a little bit longer than a, a land mile. But you know, pretty close. So about 10 to 12 knots, the ship is moving, the pilot boat comes in, matches the speed, so that it appears relative to each other, you're not moving. Does that make sense? So there, mm -hmm. there's zero relative speed if you do it right, and you come up right next to it. And then you step across to the ladder. And so for listeners, it's a Jacob's ladder. So picture two long ropes with boards every foot or so and you you climb that's the ladder that's standard equipment that you use to get on and off ships so no matter how modern or what sort of technology is out there you still have to climb up and down a rope ladder basically to get on and off a ship and that climb can be anywhere from a step across so almost no climb to 30 feet so it, it really varies why is it that new methods of getting onto the ship haven't been implemented, you know, a side door, maybe half of that height up above the waterline, obviously, but some other mechanism to get onto the ship. The method of getting on a board has, has so much to do with what kind of ship it is. So passenger vessels, for example, have that exactly. They have a, a door in the side and they open up the door and the boat pulls up and it's usually a step or maybe one or two steps on the ladder, on the pilot ladder. But it, it's a, as long as the weather's good and you have everything matched, it's very easy to get on and off of ships in that way. On some of the really big container ships, you also go in through a side door. Most ships, though, the, the part of the ship that you're, you're climbing up is cargo space. 
So if you had to have an access door on each side with a walkway and stairs and all those things, you'd be cutting into the the cargo space of the ship. And and ships are just cargo movers. The, the, The people part of it is really, it's so secondary. So the ladder, even though it's so simple, ropes and and slats it's there are very there are no moving parts there's very little that can break as far as that goes they're used to they used to some ships used to have these pilot hoists and it was almost like a little exterior elevator and you get on board and they push a button and it there's a pulley and wires and because things are sub ships are subject to salt water and air, those things would start failing and people would get hurt and all that. So those things were outlawed a really long time ago. Uh, so sometimes, you know, simple is better in bigger ports. Pilots get on and off by helicopter, but it's enormously expensive and not really practical for our waterway. Yeah. Yeah. That all makes sense. Um, especially when you talk about the, uh, likelihood of failing of some kind of more complicated machine. And obviously the, the owner of the cargo ship wants to maximize how much cargo they have inside of the hull. <laughs> yeah. When you get aboard a ship, what's the interaction like between that ship's captain and crew? So there are some standard things that you have to do. So a ship's officer or an unlicensed person meets you at the ladder on the deck and then walks you up to the wheelhouse in case you don't know how to get there. So the wheelhouse, navigation bridge, there's terms that you use interchangeably, and there are, many of them are correct. And so that's the nerve center of the ship as far as navigation goes. So there's usually a captain, officer of the watch, and a helms person, someone who's physically got their hands on the wheels steering. And you have a, a, a brief conference with the captain before you take over. So The first thing I usually say, hello, captain, how are you? How's everything? Is everything working okay? And that's kind of their first opportunity to say either everything's fine or (laughs) everything's fine except, you know, this doesn't work or that doesn't work or or whatever. And then there's actually a written exchange. There's what they call a pilot card. And so the ship provides certain information there's a kind of a bird's eye view outline of a ship with certain distances that are important for me to know what kind of propulsion the ship has. Is it a single propeller, a double propeller, how fast the ship goes, how long it takes to stop, Yeah, just all sorts of maneuvering characteristics. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to really go line by line before you take over. Generally, the is everything working well enough for me to take over? That's the first thing. And then I ask what course they're steering and how fast they're going. What what They have what they call bells. So let's say a ship can go 100 RPMs on full speed. So 30 RPMs might be what they call dead slow. And that's a, a low speed. It's the lowest speed the, the diesel engine can go. You have, it's sort of a minimum RPM. So you, you get that air start. Mm-hmm. And then the propeller's spinning. And so that might be four or five knots. And then slow ahead is a little bit more and half ahead. And then you work your way up to full ahead. And that's all laid out on a table. And that becomes important when you're maneuvering, you start slowing down. And that way, you know how much power you get and um, and sort of what to expect. So usually ships are on slower half to get the pilot boat alongside. And then you get up to the bridge, you go up to full ahead. And then uh, the exchange with the helmsman, what course are you steering? And he says 084. I repeat 084. And then the pilot has the con, which means the pilot has control of the vessel. So, and then, so that's like your, your basic interaction. So I'm interacting with the helmsman constantly because I'm giving rudder commands, right 10, left 10, you know, every Mm -hmm. subtle little movement of the ship is given through commands and and then the captain obviously i'm interacting with the captain all along the way you know we we go a little bit deeper especially if there are deficiencies you know if you had a failure in your last port what was it are your anchors ready you know you have to the anchors have to be ready to drop you have to have a lookout on the bow so there's just like sort of a constant flow of information i tell them what side the ship is going to go 
to the dock so they can prepare their ropes for mooring in their gangway. Um, I tell them what time we're going to get tugboats. You know, there are a lot of things, a lot of reporting, phone calls, arrangements that get made in the few hours. So yeah, so there are other people on the bridge. And a lot of what you talk about is just the business of getting the ship from one place to another. But then there's also casual conversation. Over the years, I found captains are curious about why a woman is a pilot or how a mm. woman got to be a pilot. They offer you lunch or dinner <laughs> if it's mealtime and you talk about the food and, oh, what was your last port? Where are you going next? What's your cargo? So sometimes there's chit chat. Um, and then if it's a repeat customer, if it's someone that I know that I've been on their ship before, it's there's always a warm welcome. Hello, Captain Carolyn, how are you? And oh, how's your son? Or, you know, how's your family? And, it, you know, so it's nice. It's nice when you have those repeat customers because it's um, the familiarity helps. Most mariners are on ships for a long time. So sometimes just those familiar things, it, it's just, it's nice. What is your most challenging moment that you faced during your career? That's a really hard question to answer. Or, or at least the most memorable. <laughs> you know, the first ship I handled on my own was, that was really memorable in a good way. Um, we, we train a lot for the job. But then your first solo is, you know, you're dying to tell the captain it's your first solo, but you don't want to tell them either. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of had that push pull in my head and I, I didn't tell him. He wasn't a regular customer, so he was just, you know, it was his first time in Tampa, and I was sailing the ship at night, and um, I went on board. I did my thing. I got off, and, you know, that was, like, an amazing, just to get that first solo under your belt. Yeah. yeah. But, honestly, there are challenges regularly. We get a, a, a new kind of ship, a, a bigger ship, a deeper ship. You get terrible weather. There, there are challenges all the time. So that that's really a moving target. But yeah, just you know, getting fully licensed, soloing, moving up, becoming a good partner, and then being able to train the pilots behind me. It, it's it's there's a lot of satisfaction there, and and challenges. It's it's hard to watch other people learn. And, and then when they really start getting the hang of it, that feels really good. And I imagine every time you go out as routine as it may seem, it's a, a totally different, uh, adventure every time, even if it's a ship you've been on before, because no conditions are ever going to be the same from one time to the next, whether it's weather or traffic or what have you. Yeah, that's, that's really true, Rich. Um, I, I often say that Ships are all the same and they're all different. <laughs> so the principles of ship handling don't change, but everything else does. The time of day, if you're tired, if the crew is tired, if it's a nice day, if it's nighttime, raining, windy, hot, cold, it, did they give you lunch or now you're irritated because you're hungry and you missed lunch? <laughs> you know, all of those kinds of things. Is the coffee good? Um, <laughs> no. You know, so yeah, there are just, you know, dozens and dozens of, of variables. What do you enjoy most about being a pilot? It's incredibly satisfying on a day-to-day -day basis. You go to work and you move a ship. And if you didn't give all of those commands in that order, the ship wouldn't get where it's supposed to go. That just having that experience, the expertise, the confidence of the captain to not interfere with what I'm doing. Um, but there are so many other entities that contribute to me being successful in the job. So having really good tugboats and really good people working on the tugboats, that makes docking and undocking look easy because those guys and gals are, are doing a terrific job. You know, the office staff that's arranging it, the, there's timing. It's, it's this just incredible coordination of efforts that people are going to be where they're supposed to be when, when you need them. So the people handling the lines and the agent getting to the ship and the, your ride getting there after, and like, there's a, an incredible amount of coordination. Yeah. You know, the, the pilot gets a lot of credit for, for doing that stuff, 
but it, there's there's a good team there too. You pilot some really some of the biggest cargo ships that come in and out of this port in Tampa. When you're finished with that, when you bring that ship in and you look at it from afar and you see how big it is, you can say to yourself, I guided that ship. That humongous vessel. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know it takes a team, <laughs> but yeah. still you were in charge. <laughs> yeah, no, I still I still feel that way. I- I've been doing this for 28 years now and it doesn't the job doesn't get old. I'm not jaded about what I do. I I love the job. I respect the job. And even if it's the smallest ship that comes in here, they still deserve the same attention to detail that you give on what you perceive as being the hardest or biggest ship that you're moving. Anything can happen on any size vessel at any time and you have to be prepared that you can have a big accident on a little ship. So, you know, that sort of, um, I just keep calling it respect. That's what it is. In my opinion, you can't just dismiss something, but you're right. Sometimes I'm climbing up a big ship, a really big ship, a thousand foot long <laughs> ship at three o'clock in the morning. And I think to myself, wow, like this is amazing. And, or I'll get done with it. And I'll be going down on the dock or we have a, a pilot boat up in the city that picks us up off the ships on the seaside. And as we're driving away, I'll look at it and think, wow, that's that's a really big ship. So I do. I, I still I sometimes I'm really in awe of some of the stuff. But when you're there and you're working, the, the compartmentalization is really important. And you just focus on the thing that you're doing. If you sit around thinking about, oh, my gosh, this ship is so big. What am I going to do if this thing goes wrong? you're just so well trained that those things kick in because you do spend time thinking about what happens next if something doesn't go the way it's supposed to go. But a lot of that is instinctive by now. I really don't spend that much time thinking that I have to climb up 30 feet or that this thing's a thousand feet long. You know, you would just, I I think for myself, I would be paralyzed probably (laughs) if I had to, if I really gave it that much thought. I just climb up one rung at a time. I don't like heights. And that's, that's another thing, which is really weird, but I can climb up and down a ladder and it's fine because it's what I do. It's how I get to work. But if I go to other places, if I'm on a a balcony or a building or something up high and I'm like, Whoa, that's really high. I don't like that so much. I want to go back to something you said a moment ago about uh, whether or not the captain of the ship interferes. Does that happen often or or there are a certain set of criteria that have to exist in order for the captain of the ship to interfere with what you're doing? Some captains are a little nervous. And so if they don't have confidence in you, they're kind of trying to tell you what to do. And when I was younger, I started doing this when I was 31. So I'd walk up on the ship. They were kind of looking over my shoulder to see if my dad was behind me you know, or so it was just yeah, kind of insulting. So 31 year old female, they've never seen a woman on a ship before. And it's like, okay, you know, where's, where's the old guy that's supposed to be doing this job today. So they know intellectually that this isn't your first day on a ship because in any country being a pilot is it's the pinnacle of the, the profession is to, is to be a pilot. Mm. So they know that but they still don't quite believe it because it's not in their realm of experience. So when I was a lot younger, um, the captains would try to, I don't want to say push me around. That's too strong, but, Oh, the ship's coming in too fast. Oh, the, you know, the something. And it's like, captain, I have tugboats and I know what I'm doing. This isn't my first day at work or the ship really has to be in what they call in extremis for the captain to step in and be justified in stepping in. It's a very tricky position for the captain to be in because the captain is ultimately responsible for what happens to their ship, but it doesn't relieve the pilot of their responsibility. The pilot is very much responsible. There used to be this sort of misconception that pilots are just advisors, and that's not really true. Pilots are liable for the mistakes that they make. And in fact, there's been a criminalization of pilot incidents in recent times, 10, 20 years in the past, 
So pilots do take the responsibility very, very seriously. If a captain interferes or, or really takes over, they had better have a good reason. It can't just be, oh, I thought you were doing this too fast. But they may not necessarily recognize when that moment is. So, you know, I try to keep the captain informed of my plan. So this is what we're going to do. And this is when we're going to slow down. This is where we get tugs. This is the turning basin. You're going to have this much clearance on each end so that it isn't scary for them because some of the maneuvers we do are in very, very tight quarters and, and they just don't operate like that in some other places where they may not have seen that before. So I feel like the more information I can share with the captain as far as what I'm doing, then the more comfortable the captain is. And it sort of cuts that interference thing off before it even starts. But a lot of that, it comes with age and experience and having the confidence to, to tell the captain, you know, stop <laughs> or understanding that if you don't keep what you do as a mystery, just share what you're doing. And then that makes people comfortable. There's something called bridge resource management. And that is, it's this sort of team philosophy that ships officers train in so that the junior officers aren't afraid to speak up if they see something that isn't right. So let's say the captain and the pilot are chit-chatting, blah, blah, blah. And the third mate sees that you're going to hit a buoy or a fishing boat or, or something. It's to give them a voice so that they can speak up instead of saying, oh, you're the third mate, shut up. You don't know anything. You know, every person that's up there has a lot of value. And so the more participation there is, the more comfortable the junior people are in participating, really the safer the bridge is. It, it's, it's a little tricky to navigate sometimes, no pun intended. So, <laughs> <laughs> It is a little bit of a gray area, um, I'm sure. But, you know, in the end, you're all on the same team. You're all trying to get that ship exactly. in or out of the port safely. Yeah. So, Exactly. Now, I asked you what your most favorite thing is about your profession, but what is the least favorite? I probably can guess, but what is your least favorite thing about being a pilot? <laughs> working during the night and working in bad weather, they're kind of tied. So, <laughs> um, but that, you know, that comes with the job. So we, at least 50% of our traffic moves at night. So that's just part of the job is learning how to nap and to function on not so much sleep and making sure you're not spending your off time doing other things other than eating and resting and waiting for your next job. Yeah. And, um, and weather, you know, the weather, sometimes bad weather is a little, can be very stressful. I was going to say, I, I would guess it had, it would have to do with the, the conditions in general of, of having to work overnight and then bad weather. So yeah, I, not hard to guess yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah. The size of the ships that enter the, uh, the port, here in Tampa Bay, very greatly. Do you specialize in any particular type of ship or does it just depend on what's coming and going? No, we, every pilot does everything. So from a 150 foot yacht up to 1100 foot container ship, mm. every pilot is qualified to do. And we just are in rotation. So there's no, there's no specialization there. So whoever's next up just goes out. Whoever's next up just goes out. Now, I think maritime pilots are the unsung heroes of the shipping industry. When I see and read about all these wrecks that I research, and a lot of them come down to just not not navigating properly, uh, not knowing the area, not uh, following, really just not following what they should be doing. So getting these, especially these gigantic cargo ships we have now, uh, Getting them into and out of ports really is the lifeblood of the global trade. If there's any interference in, in these processes, well, we saw what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic when that ship got stuck in the Panama Canal. and <laughs> Or not the Panama Canal, it was the Suez Canal. Suez Canal, yeah. So uh, anyway, I think pilots are vastly underrated um, and underappreciated, uh, not by me. But just in general, <laughs> do you agree with that? 
Again, it varies. In some places, there's more of a maritime culture than others. I find that here in Florida, there is a great irony there. Florida has a lot of coastline and there are nine or 10 pilot associations and everything that isn't manufactured or grown right where you are is moving around on ships. And a lot of people just don't know that. And that is always surprising to me when I come across people that don't really understand how they're getting all the stuff that they get every day. And it's, uh, you know, the gas that goes in your car and the, the, the bananas and the melons that are coming up from Mexico and Costa Rica and the furniture you order from rooms to go. And, you know, just all of this stuff that's coming in on container ships and tankers and, and refrigerated cargo ships and the lumber and the, the cement and everything you use for construction and building roads, all that stuff comes in by ship. So, so yeah, I think there is a, a lack of awareness generally in the whole industry, not just piloting. Um, but even sometimes people know about ships, but they don't know about pilots and that we're very port specific and that um, the risk is enormous. There's a lot of training. And if we make a mistake, you know about it. If you, you make a mistake when you're piloting you know, that means a ship has gone aground, it's hit a dock, it's hit another ship, and there's been some big delay or some damage of some kind. So, you know, I hate to say that we're unsung heroes. I think we're just in a, in a profession that is not, we don't want to be in the public eye. Let me just put it that way. We're not looking for recognition or, you know, great accolades or, or anything like that. It just, you know, our biggest concern, we just want to move ships safely and not have barriers put in our way or have people say that um, or, to, or for people to minimize what we do, because there are people that do that. They oh, well, what are you really doing? You have a laptop computer. You know, my 14 year old could do that. And it's it's really insulting. And I, I do meet people occasionally. And it, it's always a bit of shock when they look at me and say, well, that's easy. Don't you just sit around and like drink coffee and look at a computer and. <laughs> And I'm thinking, wow, yeah, like, that's very insulting. You should come on. You you should come on a ship with me because yeah. you clearly have no idea what we do. So, yeah, I mean, I I think it's important to educate people about what we do, but we're well compensated and um, we signed up for it. So I don't think you're going to find pilots complaining because people aren't singing our praises. It is an important job, but there are a lot of important jobs that aren't really visible to everyone. And I, I personally, I kind of like it that way. I, you know, I, if nobody knows my name, that's okay. But then in the context of being a female mariner that could inspire younger women to go into the maritime industry, then I want everyone to know my name because I think it's important to inspire people that would be such an asset to the industry. So it is, again, that push-pull thing. I, I suppose if you wind up in the news, that's probably not for a good thing. <laughs> not usually. Uh, you mentioned, of course, being a female pilot, uh, some of the challenges you've faced with that. I believe you're one of only two female pilots in Florida. There are not many overall in the United States, uh, but clearly your experience and your accolades speak for themselves. But how would you describe overall the position you're in, uh, in such a male dominated profession? First and foremost, I didn't enter the profession to be any kind of trailblazer or set an example or inspire people. I wanted to be in the profession because I wanted to be on ships and it really never occurred to me that I couldn't. So that's what I did. And, and then Naively, I suppose, I was always a little surprised at the reaction of the vast majority of men. So at the Merchant Academy, it was about 10% women. When I went to sea, I was usually the only female on the ship with maybe 22 people on the whole ship. Um, so that just sort of became normal for me. And it took a few years for that glass ceiling to really become a problem or an opportunity for 
change. <laughs> I don't like to call things problems, but um, if I hadn't run into that as a ship's officer, I never would have become a pilot. So, you know, there are challenges and you, and you deal with them. So you stand your ground, you try to do a better job than everyone else around you and just try to, you know, insist on being evaluated for your performance and for what you bring to the table rather than for someone's perception of why women can't do this or women can't do that. That stuff just doesn't fly. And when you work on a ship, there's just, there's so few people and so much work to do that male or female, everyone has to do their part plus a little more. Otherwise it doesn't work. So once you're working with people, they get that. But it does get a little tiresome having to prove that over and over. Um, but as a pilot, you know, you're, you're very high in the profession. So there's not an assumption of special treatment or that it was easier for you to become a pilot. Piloting is a hard profession, whether you're a man or a woman. It is stressful and it is technically challenging and there's just a lot to deal with all the time. And so I think for all pilots, not just women, it, it's a challenging profession to be in. The, you know, then there are subtleties to that as well. Being, you know, the only woman in my association, there have been men that were insensitive to things that happened to happen to me and them equally, but for some reason, it's minimized when it happens to me, you know, and without just getting too personal about that, um, you know, again, you just, you have to be a good partner and do make the best decisions that are for your organization and be excellent at your job. And that's how you gain the respect of people. And that's how you pave the way for the people that come after you. Um, but it is, it's a lot of work. And sometimes you get worn down because you know, you're always explaining, always explaining something, you know, and, and it's, sometimes you just want to go and do your job and not have someone say, Oh, you know, I've never had a female pilot before. It's like, okay, how do I even yeah. respond to that anymore? I'm like, you know, I used to try and think of some little snippy answers and whatnot. And, and now I just, I, I just kind of ignore it, but I'm older now, you know, you can see the gray hair and, um, so I get on the ship and they know it's not my first day. Not older, experienced. So. <laughs> experienced, yeah. yeah. And to, to that person that said, I've never had a female pilot before, you could say, well, have you had a pilot before? Because that's what I am. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's good. Uh, you know. Yeah, I'll do that next time. Well, I hope that overall it's gotten better over the years rather than, than worse. Uh, but certainly what you've gone through and the challenges you've faced – are appreciated by all the young aspiring pilots out there. Uh, do you have any advice for anyone looking to get into the profession? Yeah, I think one of the most important things you can do if you set your sights on piloting is to make contact with a pilot and, and develop a relationship so that you have a mentor, male or female, it doesn't matter. There were very few female role models for me when I was coming up, and my mentor was a man. And to this day, he still gives me advice and guidance and encouragement. So those relationships can look a lot of different ways, but there are a lot more women in high positions now. So for a young woman looking to become a pilot, I would say get in touch with a woman pilot and, and, and just develop that relationship. There's uh, a wonderful organization called women offshore and they have a big social media presence and that is a fantastic place to start. They have a mentorship program where you get matched based on your professional and personal characteristics, goals, whatnot. And I've been involved in that program for several years and have had some wonderful mentees from, you know, student to recent graduate um, to someone that's been in the profession that wants to be a pilot now. So, and, and they're great. It's a, you learn a lot even if you're the mentor, you learn from your mentee all the time. And, um, and it's, it's kind of that same thing. All ships are the same and all ships are different. 
you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So the maritime industry is it's still very slow to change. And, and women are still feeling like they're singled out in lots of ways, but there has been a lot of progress. So the the numbers of women in maritime are growing, not super fast, but there are more now than there were then. And, and there are more pathways to the higher positions now. Um, but I would tell any young person, any young woman in particular, women offshore is that that's where you want to start because they have tremendous resources. And, um, you know, if you're on a ship going in and out of a port and you happen to have a female pilot, you know, don't be afraid to say hello and say, can I ask you a few questions after the job's over? Usually I try to initiate that. If there's a woman officer on the bridge, I'll ask them if they've ever considered becoming a pilot and, you know, just to let me know if they're interested or need help. So, you know, I do, there are lots of women all over the place that, you know, and I know all the women that are captains and pilots, we all do this. We, we just try to encourage people and um, help them through any of the challenging times they may be having on the ship or try to direct them, you know, someplace. But there, there are a lot of resources out there now that didn't exist when I started in the profession in the 80s. Wow, that sounds like a long time ago, doesn't it? <laughs> the 80s. <laughs> you were also appointed and presently serving on the National Navigation Safety Advisory Committee. Uh, what are the responsibilities of that committee? So that's what's known as a federal advisory committee or a FACA. And it is an advisory committee to the Coast Guard, to the Commandant of the Coast Guard. So when the Coast Guard's looking at making or changing policy or doing anything that affects the navigation rules of the road, they seek advice from users of the waterway. So the committee is made up of 20 or so members that range from pilots, captains, people that work at shipping offices, passenger vessel associations, sailing vessel people, you know, the whole spectrum of people that use the waterway. And we gather together usually twice a year and we're given tasks and it's to evaluate and craft resolutions, which act as advice to the Coast Guard for, for implementing policy and making changes. So sometimes, you know, a bunch of Coast Guard people sitting around a room, they come up with something, think it's a great idea, and they really haven't considered how that affects everybody else so that everybody else is on that committee. Do you have anything else you'd like to share? Just, just a, a simple thing to share is, you know, don't take no for an answer. If if there's something you want to do in your life, whether it's piloting or going to sea or becoming a, a chef or a, you know, an astronaut or a surgeon, uh, whatever it is you want to do in your life, just go do it. And don't let people tell you that you can't do it because you are this or you are that, you know, that's up to you. That's their baggage. That's not your baggage, right? It's, I don't think it's, women or other people should adjust. When you're the minority in a group, people always think that you have to adjust to fit in. But you're a qualified, skilled, intelligent, value-added person to whatever the organization is. And it's, it's their issues with you. It's not your issues with them. And so if there's something you want to do, just just go after it and find someone that's in the profession that can help you and guide you and, and be a, like a reality check. If you are perceiving something that that's pretty useful. Sometimes you feel put upon and you think it's because you're this thing and it's not, it could just be because you didn't do that. Right. So you have to be able to kind of separate those issues. Um, I am on Instagram. It is a private so, but if I get requests, if I recognize it as someone that's maritime related or, you know, not trying to sell me something, I, I always allow access. So on Instagram, I'm just pilot mom and then the number 52. So anyone that um, is interested in communicating or watching the, the time-lapse videos or the pictures of sunrises over the Skyway Bridge, um, I welcome that. Or a young aspiring pilot reaching out for a mentor? 
Yeah, and I do. I get messages on my Instagram. It's it's kind of nice. And actually, it's, this kind of neat thing happened. And it was all through Instagram. I hate to plug a social media outlet because they're just so enormous. And they're listening to you while you're talking on the phone. <laughs> but um, I met a woman in Australia through Instagram. And she set me up with a long-distance mentorship for the first female pilot in Sydney, Botany Bay. And this was several years ago. And so that was the first mentor relationship I, I had with another female mariner. And it didn't matter that she was halfway around the world. We talked about all the same things I would talk about with a pilot that's in my own port. And, um, and that network of women pilots around the world has really grown. And there are, I think, 60 of us now in oh, on wow. a WhatsApp chat. So if there are any female pilots that listen to this podcast, they need to reach out because, you know, we're trying to link everybody together. And that conversation is just continuing to grow. And that all happened through social media. So that was such a positive thing when you think of also the the negative things and the rabbit holes that people go down. Um, But it's really been incredible in in connecting us. That's that's really great. 60 people all on a WhatsApp chat. Yeah. And different people chime in at different times. Everyone's, we're all in different time zones. So, you know, we have pilot in India and Australia, Sweden, the UK, uh, from Alaska to Florida, you know, so really it's, it's hard to even get five or six people that are awake or not working at the same time, but people post their pictures from work. And then sometimes we have some pretty serious chats about safety things or, some of the issues female pilots have as far as, you know, having kids and um, dealing with uh, resistance from their group to better their safety culture. The women seem to be a little more safety conscious just generally. Um, So there are some pretty serious professional issues that we discuss in the group. And then we also have fun. You know, there's birthday wishes and pictures and silly things. And we try to do zoom meetups twice a month and whoever just is awake and available. And and that's always been pretty interesting too. But um, yeah, social media for good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fantastic. That's great that you do that. You know, maritime school is a very interesting experience. There are other parts to the maritime industry than just working on ships and becoming pilots. It's a, it's a fascinating industry. So you know, if you're in high school and you're not sure what you want to do, look at a maritime school as a possibility just to open your eyes and expand you know, your view of the world because ships and the water really connect all of us. It's it's quite amazing. Well, Captain Carolyn Kurtz, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much to Captain Carolyn Kurtz for joining me today. I really appreciate it. For any young women out there who are interested in becoming a maritime pilot, please go to womenoffshore.org, as Carolyn mentioned in the episode, and you'll find all kinds of resources there for you. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is written, edited, and produced by me, Rich Napolitano. Original theme music is by Sean Secret, and you can follow him at Sean Secret on YouTube, or on the web at sean.sigfried.se. You can follow Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs on social media at shipwreckspod and also at shipwrecksandseadogs.com. Last but not least, I would really appreciate it if all of you out there could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, goodpods.com, or podchaser.com, and tell a friend. The show is growing, and I'd love to see it grow even more. Until next time, don't forget to wear your life jackets. Many thanks to Rich and Captain Kurtz. In the show notes, I've posted a link to Rich's website for this specific episode where you can see pictures of Captain Kurtz at work. I hope you will check out more of the Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs podcast. In addition to finding Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs on Rich's website or your favorite podcast player, you can also get it ad-free on the Into History website, and there's a link to that in the show notes too. Next week, we are back to me doing the talking. It's episode 11.1, It's a Girl! The Tortuous History of Expecting a Daughter. Thanks!
Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.